Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. As we've learned again and again, it little profits persons or commentators to try to understand what Donald Trump is thinking. But really, what in the world is he thinking? The Department of Justice informed Trump's lawyers that they believe he is still concealing classified documents. And after huddling with his legal team, Trump opted to thumb his nose yet again at the DOJ, a move that virtually pleads with the department to indict him for obstruction. In the meantime, the seditious conspiracy trial of Stuart Rhodes and four other Oath Keepers is underway in Washington, D.C., and given the unusual defense that the conspirators were there to answer Trump's prospective call to take up arms, it figures to continue to focus attention on Trump's outrageous conduct on January 6th. Notwithstanding all the bad news for Trump, the impact of these continued revelations on the midterms, now just one month away, remains cloudy. More than half the Republican candidates in state and federal elections are on record supporting the big lie. And Republican Senate candidate and ardent pro-lifer Herschel Walker appears not yet to have been harmed by the revelation that he strong-armed a girlfriend into getting an abortion. Democrats, meanwhile, look to be straddling dual strategies of touting legislative achievements and a mixed economic record and emphasizing the grave threats to democracy posed by a potential GOP takeover of even one House of the Congress. To break down these tricky and high-stakes conflicts, we welcome three of the country's most prolific and well-respected commentators, and not least, to our great good fortune, regular guests to Talking Feds. And they are Rick Wilson, a political consultant turned political writer. He is a co-founder of the Lincoln Project, a lifelong Republican which, by the way, makes this an all-apostate panel of never-Trumper former Republicans, Rick was an early critic of President Trump, whom he now torments daily with astonishingly effective ads. Since leaving politics, he's published two books, Everything Trump Touches Dies and the recent Running Against the Devil. Welcome back to Talking Feds, Rick Wilson. Hey, Harry, thanks for having me back. David Frum, who actually has been away for several months. Thanks for returning. A staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of 10 books, most recently, Trumpocalypse Restoring American Democracy. He has been active in Republican politics since the 80s and served in government as speechwriter for President George W. Bush from 2001 to 2002. Welcome back to Talking Feds, David Frum. Thank you. Jen Rubin, an opinion columnist for The Washington Post, where she covers politics as well as foreign and domestic policy. She's also a commentator on MSNBC. And previous, she was a writer for Commentary Magazine. And before then, she worked as a real live labor law attorney for two decades. Welcome back, as always, to my law school classmate, Jen Rubin. Nice to see you again, Harry. All right. Let's start with the latest hijinks from Donald Trump. 
who, as Rick says, rules everything around MAGAs. So the report out yesterday seems that it's pretty clear that the DOJ believes that Trump still hasn't produced all the classified documents he purloined from the White House. As a prosecutor, I just think he's begging the DOJ to indict him. I know it's crazy to try to psychoanalyze him, but does he have a game plan? And, you know, why has he decided to, it's not doubling down, right? It's 64th down or whatever on withholding the documents. I don't know that he necessarily has a game plan. Trump's modus operandus is to create chaos, to play to his mob, to generate anger, and to spew whatever bizarre theories he thinks in his adult mind might escape him. And at this point, and this is frightful, he may not know what he still has and where everything is. And that is truly a national security disaster. What I found so interesting about this is that it was made public. And there are a couple explanations for why that is. One is, as one of our fellow legal commentators put it, it's a soft target letter. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's a sign from DOJ that your time is coming up and it's things like this that make it essential for us to indict you. The other is that DOJ is exploiting these rifts between Trump and his lawyers and among his lawyers. You know, we've had this whole series of stories that he had gotten advice from some lawyers to turn stuff over and others that he finagled into making representations that were in all likelihood untrue. And that when you kind of peel this all back, you have Trump being represented by people who themselves have legal exposure. So it could have well been DOJ's effort to kind of wake up the attorneys who might have such liability and beckon them over to come chat at DOJ about figuring out how they'd like to get themselves out of trouble. That's an interesting point. We know the lines were drawn between the one lawyer who we learned with great fanfare, an actual uh, respected member of the Florida Bar, former SG there, and then all of a sudden we learned was demoted. So apparently he lost this infighting battle. He was saying, can we cooperate? Although it's interesting, he was saying, let's do our own forensic investigation. So it, that suggested that they didn't know exactly where they might be, which, as you say, might be the most alarming point of all. But they could have played it cooperatively, and Trump decided again not to. And whatever else he's thinking, it clearly adds to an obstruction case against him, which seems to me to be the likely leading charge of a Mar-a-Lago-driven indictment. Yeah. My operating theory of Trump's way of doing business is that he's a crook before he's a thug, and he's a head case before he's a crook. So when you say, what's his plan? I don't think he has plans in the way that a normal functioning human being or even a normally functioning criminally minded human being would have plans. I mean, he's got impulses. He's got rages. He's got outbursts. 
and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. They, they have worked pretty well for him to date because uh, he overloads the political system. As many people said, if there had been one Trump scandal, the political system could have dealt with him. When this system cannot even keep track of the scandals, they sort of lose their potency because there are just too many and they're crammed into, into too tight a space. But I think there may be something about to happen that may possibly change the relationship. I know this gets in advance of what you want to talk about. But if the Republicans don't take the Senate, and if they don't take the Senate because of the impossible candidates that Trump foisted on the party in the Senate races, I think there has been already a lot of ill will between Trump and the organized Republican Party. That's why Ron Santos is raising so much money. McConnell, the Senate Minority Leader, maybe forever Senate Minority Leader McConnell's made clear he, how little regard he has for Trump. If McConnell doesn't become Majority Leader because of Trump's foisting bad candidates on McConnell, I think that may have legal as well as political implications. And I'll just add one sort of obvious point to that, which is, I think, Trump's instincts. And you, you put them pretty well. He's feral or sociopathic or whatever, but he doesn't distinguish between the legal system and the political system. So he'll play from his regular playbook of chaos and the like, but that in fact could invite serious trouble once you're in the crucible of the legal system, subject to penalty of perjury, etc. Okay, let's stick with them a little bit more before jumping ahead to the midterms. And just a couple other things on the current horizon. So we've got a important seditious conspiracy trial of Stuart Rhodes and the Oath Keepers. And now we have today secured a, a cooperating witness in a similar trial coming up to, for Enrique Tario and his gang. How, if at all, do you think that plays into the dynamic that David was just identifying? Sure. Well, look, Stuart Rhodes is a character... If he didn't exist, you'd have to write Stuart Rhodes, an Ivy League-educated lawyer who cosplays as a piratical kind of revolutionary weirdo. And the fact that he's in a sedition trial where it isn't a matter of freedom of speech, where the DOJ appears to have him, you know, chapter and verse, nuts and bolts, locked down on his activities in this entire shenanigan, you're going to see this guy become a martyr on the alt-right and the militarized Meal Team 6 cosplay paramilitary right, even more so than he already is, I think it's a valuable and yet also dangerous trial. I think it's dangerous because he is a guy who has a lot of people around him and who follow him and who are motivated by him, who are tooled up and ready to rock. And as he said in one of these you know, pieces of evidence that came forward in this thing, we should have brought more rifles. And I think that's an enormously concerning and dangerous individual when you come right down to it. So I'm watching the trial closely. I think it's important. And I think it is one more, one more layer that showed that Trump attempted to use a violent, organized coup to hold power after the 2020 election kicked him out of office. Well, I think it certainly puts pressure on Trump. And we're seeing and hearing literally one half of a conversation. You're hearing what they are saying, you're not necessarily hearing what is being heard on the other side or what is coming back. And one of the key questions for Trump's liability and in seditious conspiracy is the degree to which these sort of two halves of the conspiracy may have come together, namely the Oath Keepers, the violent militia, and Trump and that 
team, if you will, at the Willard Hotel. So one thing that I've been clearly looking at is, are we getting any hints that might tie those strands together? But I will say it is striking how much the behavior of Stuart Rhodes parallels Trump. As soon as the election is held, deny, deny, deny. The sense that we're literally going to war against these people, the refusal to acknowledge reality, the almost messianic kind of hyperbolic thinking. No wonder these people attract it. It's really kind of the same mindset that unspools. As far as Republicans out there, they are ignoring so many things. This actually comes low on the list of things they're ignoring. They're ignoring many more important things or many more visible things. So I think they are simply trying to ignore it. I would hope that the, here's a shameless plug, the Washington Post's superb research piece by one of our reporters documenting the number of election deniers, nearly 300 on the ballot, will put that issue back front and center. And of course, Liz Cheney made news this week by saying that she would support the Democrat in Arizona, both for governor and secretary of state, because these Republicans who deny the results of 2020 pose an existential threat to democracy. So I think the issue of Trump, the issue of democracy is kind of hanging like a cloud in the background. Frankly, it may have been displaced by abortion. It may have been displaced by the economy. I don't think the Rhodes trial per se is getting any traction in a campaign sense. One more thing, or actually two more things to worry about if I were Trump. One is let us not lose sight of the commercial fraud action brought by the state of New York as a civil matter. So it doesn't have to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. It just has to be proven. And that's one where I, I think the facts are very well known and were well known even before the action was dropped. I'm going to forget the year, but ProPublica, through some very ingenious reporting in 2017 or 2018, got filings from a couple of Trump's buildings and was able to show that he was reporting different rent rolls to his bankers and different rent rolls to the tax assessors. Now, it's pretty hard to think of an innocent explanation as to why anybody would do, do that. I mean, it's one thing to report a different valuation of the building because my late father, who was in the real estate business, used to say that income is a fact, wealth is value is a theory. So what you put down as the building's value you're, is a guess. But the income, that's documented. Uh, you've got you know, check stubs. And if you're reporting different rental income to your banker and to the tax assessor, you are deceiving at least one of them and maybe both. And those things are, are very, very dangerous. And meanwhile, the case by which federal and state tax returns would be available to Congress, that also is chugging along and will go to the Supreme Court. And the delay on that has been incredible, but nothing is forever and the delay on that won't be forever. So I want to put one nuance in what David said. It's not just that it's civil and has a lower burden, but also that for that reason, the normally ironclad rule of not commenting on a defendant's invocation of the Fifth Amendment doesn't apply. So Trump took it 500 times, as did Eric Trump, and the jury will hear that again and again and again and be instructed that they can take that as evidence of guilt. So you, when you put that next to the kind of straightforwardness, as you document, of the proof they're making, all the sort of hair pulling that we've done in other contexts about showing intent, it's such a lower threshold. 
The other thing that is coming to the fore this week is the latest hearing. Jen mentioned the Willard room as a possible bridge. Do you have any expectations that we'll be hearing about Roger Stone or that part of the whole operation? Or what in general are you thinking we're going to be seeing from the committee come Thursday? To quote the 1980s science fiction movie, The Last Starfighter, I hope they go out in a big death blossom. Fire every missile at once, because I think you're not going to get another bite of this apple. Like the closing Olympic ceremonies. Yes, you need it. You need to be big, noisy, messy, loud, painful, and you need to get it into that cycle where you are showing America this freak show of weird conspirators and violent extremists, and you know Roger Stone and Alex Jones and Ali Akbar and Stuart Rhodes and all the other people that were McCann and Steve Bannon who were the mechanics of this attempted coup. And I think so, I think the committee needs to really blast out as much data and information as they can because the truth of the matter is this is America. People are going to remember what they see on the hearing on, the, on television or what they see on, on YouTube later more than they're going to read a 9,000-page report. And I hope that we end up with a, enough leads and revelations that continues the media cycle of going after these people and exploring what happened Because, you know, as Jen mentioned, the Willard seems to have been a hub of a lot of this activity. We don't know everyone who was in that room, but we're going to have a lot more data, I think, once the committee talks, if they'll talk about it. But those folks were in there engaged in what looks to this non-lawyer like a very active conspiracy to overthrow the 2020 election. David, Jen, do you have any suppositions about where they'll be going on Thursday? Because, I mean, everything that Rick said is right in terms of the final pyrotechnics, but they've also very successfully presented freestanding chapters in every time to date. And, And if they don't have a new theme to apply and new revelations, will they risk falling flat? Well, certainly there are strings that have been left, including what happened to the Secret Service messages, including the connection between the White House and the Willard, including the funding of the January 6th gathering. We were promised at some point that that was going to be forthcoming. To pick up on something that Rick said in a larger sense, I hope they have something that's worth having this hearing for. They have been very successful in making these exciting and controversial and adding a little mystery by withholding the name of critical witnesses. And it would be bad, I think, because I agree with Rick, this is 99% of this is sort of how much gets strained through to the public, if they kind of left on a whimper rather than with a bang. So... I do hope that they have a a few things still left to deal out. Jamie Raskin has said, perhaps in softer terms than before, yes, there are additional things that we need to tell you about. But I think we may kind of be reaching the end of the road here. No pun intended to Stuart Rhodes. And I think now what happens is we'll get the report. And all of this stuff, remember, they've worked out a fair I think, agreement on information sharing, then all of this stuff goes over to the Justice Department, and that gets compiled with whatever justice has. Now, whether the committee has things that the Justice Department doesn't or is 
more illuminating, or even if they have witnesses who are now on record who they can box in because they said one thing to the committee, and now they have those same witnesses before a grand jury, that will help the Justice Department's case. But I think in some sense, the January 6th committee has already accomplished its mission, which was to remind sane people that the rest of these people are dangerous and crackers, and that there is a certain element in the Republican Party, obviously swamped by the crazies, who are very nervous about that and are running with arms open to another crackpot being in Rick's backyard, being Ron DeSantis or somebody else who's going to supposedly rescue them from this person who they've never been able to push off the stage before. Trump's core defensive weapon on the non-commercial fraud basis has been a threat that if the Department of Justice or anyone else comes after me about trying to overthrow the 2020 election on January the 6th, if they try to come after me about my mishandling of secret documents, the possible loss of secret documents, I agree with Jen that I, I think it's quite likely that Trump has lost track of them. If you've ever seen a photograph of Trump's private office or talked to anyone who's ever been in them, they're chaos. Threats nest. So it's very likely that, I mean, maybe they've never been lost. Maybe they're just underneath a, an old Dunkin' Donuts cup of coffee. But very possible it's gone, gone astray. But his defense was always, there will be trouble. I will mobilize my supporters. There will be violence. If the Republicans don't take the Senate because of Herschel Walker, because of Blake Masters, because of other people whom Trump has foisted on them, I don't know that the army is going to rally. As Rick said, the check writers in the Republican Party want DeSantis. So far, the rank and file have remained loyal to Trump. But there is communication between Chuck Riders and DeSantis. And, and in particular, if the Republicans lose the Senate because of, of Georgia, which was very much Trump's personal project, I wonder if that army shows up when he tries to summon it, or if the rest of the political system doesn't get a message, you know what, this guy, it's safe for the law to proceed. His ability to in, generate violence to protect himself from the law has diminished. Yeah, or two dozen sort of ragtaggers who, you know, you just quickly bring the full force of the law down on. All right, it is time for our sidebar feature where we explain a concept that is prevalent in the news, but not necessarily explained in the news. Today, we're going to be talking about the crime fraud exception, an exception to attorney-client privilege, which figures, among other things, in the Mar-a-Lago litigation. And to explain it to us, I'm thrilled to welcome Judd Apatow. He, of course, is a prolific comedian, director, producer, and screenwriter, and he's been responsible for bringing us iconic, hilarious, and I think very human movies and TV shows for decades, including Freaks and Geeks, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, the favorite of San Diego residents, Knocked Up, Bridesmaids, and the unforgettable, to my kids anyway, Super bad. He's been nominated for nearly every award in entertainment, including the Golden Globes, Grammys, Writers Guild of America Awards, and Emmys, of which he has won two. So it's my pleasure and honor to bring you Judd Apatow explaining the crime fraud exception. Many communications that people have with their lawyers are privileged meaning that you don't have to tell anyone about them, even in response to a lawful demand like a subpoena. 
That's not the case with all communications with your lawyer. It's only those communications made for the purpose of getting legal advice. The attorney-client privilege is the oldest privilege in Anglo-American law. Like other privileges, it exacts a cost on the system since it keeps relevant evidence from coming to light. But we've decided that cost is worth paying in order to promote sound legal advocacy, which would be compromised if a client couldn't rely on a lawyer to keep confidences. But the privilege gives way when it rubs up against other stronger policies. The keenest example, which figures in many of the Trump-related legal dramas, is the crime-fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege. Under that exception, statements made to further or conceal a crime may not be shielded by the attorney-client privilege. Communications with a lawyer about past crimes remain confidential, but the privilege can't be used to shield communications about ongoing or future crimes. So if a lawyer and client discuss ways to obstruct an investigation, or for that matter to launch a new fraud scheme, those communications are not protected. In Breaking Bad, when Saul Goodman and Walter White conspire to launder the money from Walter's drug business, their discussions are not privileged. There have been several cases in the Trump era involving the crime-fraud exception. Probably the best known happened in California in a case involving John Eastman, the lawyer who tried to develop a legal justification for keeping Vice President Pence from certifying the vote on January 6th. The January 6th committee subpoenaed documents from him, and he asked the court to issue a protective order so that he wouldn't have to produce them. For Talking Feds, I'm Judd Apatow. Thank you very much to Judd Apatow for explaining the crime-fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege. Judd's latest project, Bros, a movie he co-produced, is in theaters now. It's a romantic comedy starring Billy Eichner and Nicholas Stoller. And if you might like to support a cause that is near and dear to Judd's heart, he recommends contributing to the ACLU of Southern California. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, Bordeaux and Napa face off, pitting the Bordeaux Reds against the California Cabs. From a numbers standpoint, the Bordeaux region is the clear winner with more wineries and higher production of bottles, producing nearly six and a half times more wine than Napa. But more doesn't necessarily mean better. Bordeaux wines are a blend of five different grapes. The Bordeaux region is actually divided by an estuary and two rivers forming the left bank and the right bank. Left bank wines are predominantly Cabernet Sauvignon based, featuring more tannins and bigger overall structure. Right bank wines are predominantly Merlot based, richer in fruit, with a softer mouthfeel and less tannin and acidity. Now, much like the left bank, Napa wines are predominantly Cabernet Sauvignon and well-known for their rich, bold style. Many of these wines are also blends, but you can also find 100% varietal wines from Napa. So whether you're Team Bordeaux or Team Napa, your local Total Wine & More has a huge selection so you can enjoy the best of both worlds at a price that won't break the left or right bank. So find what you love and love what you find. Only a total wine and more. Cheers. 
Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, so all of this is leading inexorably, these questions, to the midterms, which are now a month out. Biden gives a speech today. It struck me that he was kind of straddling two different positions, and maybe that's fine, but half of it was a positive message about the economy, particularly about jobs, although inflation, of course, continues to be the burr in the saddle. But then he did also make these existential claims about the election and the threat to democracy, which do seem in recent polls as sort of uh, highfalutin as they may be, to have captured the attention of many in America. Can they straddle in that way? Do they have to choose? What do you think about the sort of Democrats' closing argument or overall argument in this last month? I think they have to, but they have to do a third thing, and that is respond in some fashion, which they have studiously avoided to the attacks on crime and immigration. Mm -hmm. Those two issues are essentially driving Mandela Barnes, who I had warned um, multiple times was not the best choice for the Democrats in Wisconsin, because you don't put someone who is on the same ideological plane as Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders to run for a contested Senate seat in Wisconsin. But those attacks are bearing fruit. And those similar attacks are being aired in other markets. Being in D.C., I get some ads from Virginia and Maryland. I think it's nothing like what they're getting in more of these swing states. And the Democrats need to have a response. One response is, well, you guys are the ones who are defunding or not funding the police and railing on the FBI. And your whole party is a political crime wave. The other is simply that, you know, Biden is addressing the problem. It may work in some places. It may not work. It's interesting. Crime is still not at the very top of the issue importance in most of these races. It's the economy. It's inflation. It's democracy. It's Dobbs, which we haven't talked about, which is hugely motivating. And I have maintained since the opinion was leaked has much more staying power and much more long-term consequences for the Democratic Party than many thought. But listen, when you get to Senate races and governor races, these are more of individual people, their personalities, their known quantities. When you're talking about House races, those are essentially the R versus the D, right. and those are not going to be all that individualized. Democrats are trying to do that in specific races where the opponent is really whacked out. You see that in the Virginia 2nd, in the Virginia 7th, in other very contentious races where you have a very moderate Democrat against someone who's a lunatic. So they're trying to point that out. But I think ultimately it's going to be a very hotly contested election, which it was not a few months ago. And I continue to caution my readers Stop reading these non-informative, uninformative polls that are all within the margin of error anyway. And if you sit there and microscopically try to follow the bouncing ball, you'll drive yourself nuts. And Rick knows all too well that we still don't have a reliable, likely voter profile. (laughs) And so all of this is just guesswork. So let's break it down this way a little, the House and the Senate. So David's already made the point, and he's made it in tweets as well, you know, possibly 
Thank you, Donald Trump, says the Republican Party. Georgia and Arizona go into the D column, and if so, Republicans essentially have to draw to an inside straight. But what about the House? Let me ask your thoughts about where we are trending now. 538 has a you know 67 to 33, or and whatever the hell that means. But where are we trending, and just how serious are the implications of the R's taking? the House. Biden did one very smart thing in this campaign, which is that speech in Philadelphia, so pointedly about Donald Trump, flushed Trump into entering the race. Trump had been trying to exercise some discipline, some restraint. He was surrounded by people who were saying, just don't make yourself the issue in 22. 24 is your year, not 22. And he held it back and he held it back. And, and Biden poked him and Trump jumped into the race. And so this is, once again, a Trump referendum. His candidates are there. And at, we know if, if it's a referendum on Trump, that hurts. Trump's William Jennings Bryan. He's an election loser over and over and over again. On the other hand, uh, there are two problems, and Jen correctly pointed one, which is I think the Democrats are paying a very, very high price, and they, deservedly a high price, for reversing the Remain in Mexico asylum policy. The crime problem, which is real, that's driven by large social factors, it's driven by police forces, it's driven by some bad decisions by Democratic mayors. That's not on the president, and that's not even on the federal Democratic Party. But getting rid of Remain in Mexico and reopening the border and millions of illegal immigrants in the guise of asylum seekers coming into the country, that was a choice, they, and they could have made a different one. Uh, the second terrible, terrible mistake the president made last night when he allowed himself to muse at a fundraiser where he was quoted that we are on the verge of a nuclear apocalypse. First, that's not true, and I don't know why it excited him to say something so reckless and irresponsible and false. He was not giving people honest warning or something they needed to know. He was self-dramatizing in a way that actually is one of his vices. And that would be part of my closing argument if I were the Republicans, which is not the, the progressives, but you know, all you Spanberger voters who voted just to have normality and calm and regular order in this country. Uh, how do you like it that your own guy is saying that thanks to his policies, we're on the brink of global nuclear apocalypse? And then the defense, which is, well, he just, you know, that's just the way he talks. That's not a very good defense because, you know what, if you talk like that, you shouldn't talk like that. And I think that may turn out to be ex expensive, not as expensive as getting rid of Remain in Mexico, but expensive. You know, Harry, I think that all the modeling that we've seen in the last eight election cycles has underestimated Republican performance in the last eight election cycles. Now, it was a mild effect in the beginning and is a marked effect now. So I have been telling Democratic friends and allies, please, for the love of God, stop reading polls and get to work. This is a dangerous position you find yourselves in. And look, God love them, but they are pouring in. By the end of the day, Beto and Fetterman will probably bring in $250 million. And there are a lot of races that I'm more worried about, like Bennett in Colorado, where the Republicans have been moving quietly under the radar screen. Wow, you think Bennett's vulnerable. I know Bennett's vulnerable. Now, listen, it's still his to lose, Yeah, but he shouldn't even have a race because he's running against an insane person. And a lot of these races, we are seeing that the, the schism between the NRSC and the Senate Leadership Fund has largely been papered over now because Senate leadership fund just went off and they're doing their own thing and they got $160 million to spend. It is a political climate that Democrats should not underestimate. They had a great gift given to them in the Dobbs decision in terms of mobilizing their base. 
but that's not enough. That's necessary, but not necessarily sufficient to hold the Senate. The House, I'm still a very, very skeptical guy about the House. The number of seats that are in states where the redistricting process is entirely controlled by the Republicans is sufficient to tie the ball game. They don't need much to take the House just on voter performance in safe seat districts. My worry there is that's the preview of the future. Why is Kevin McCarthy having Marjorie Taylor Greene on stage with him, even though he loathes her with the fire of a billion sons? He knows the caucus coming in will be much more like her than him. He knows they're going to look like election deniers, conspiracy theorists, QAnoners, nutcases, fanatics, and they are really looking forward to having that, that control so they can impeach Joe Biden, so they can go after Hunter Biden's laptop, so they can do all this stuff that will feed their base, and it will, it will send us spiraling out of control very, very quickly as a country. I mean, it sounds apocalyptic, but the apocalypse sometimes has to happen. I want to amplify what Jen said about the excellent reporting in the Washington Post. It's not just some 300 to 99 candidates, but in many states, they're completely safe seats. So we're really looking at a cadre, state and federal, of election deniers and all that goes with it for not just election issues, but regular policies and, sure. and bread and butter government issues. Well, look, I don't think you're going to see the Republican caucus in the House take up a lot of substantive issues for Americans, but they're definitely going to investigate Dr. Fauci. They're definitely going to go after Hunter Biden's laptop. They're definitely going to go after a whole series of impeachment actions where they think they can squeeze some political juice out of those things. And they are furious with the 1-6 commission. So they're going to say, well, you did this to us, and now it's vengeance all the time as a regular order of business. So I'm concerned about the House. I'm more sanguine about the Senate, but I'm not completely sanguine. Look, I'm a guy who like always studies the worst-case scenario of these things, and there's a lot of worst-case scenarios out there. Herschel Walker can still win in Georgia. I know that sounds absurd. It sounds insane. It sounds delusional. But Georgia is a red state that happens to have a ring of counties called the Donut around Atlanta that is slightly purplish blue. The rest of the state is deeply, profoundly, insanely conservative, and they really believe that Raphael Warnock is a communist socialist sleeper agent who's going to force trans adoption into their kids' middle school classrooms or something. It's insane, but that's what they are at the Republican base. And so they've made every excuse under the sun for this guy, yeah. and they'll keep doing that. So I'm concerned that Georgia may not work as well. I'm, I'm comfortable with Arizona right now. I think that's going in the right direction. Blake Masters is the most punchable face in America after Ted Cruz, <laughs> and, and he's just a bad candidate overall. I think a lot of the other Democratic seats are pretty safe. I'm concerned about Colorado. I really am. I think our friend Evan has a long shot, but, a, but not a zero chance in Utah. It is certainly driving a lot of Republican resources into a state where they shouldn't have to spend a dime. And look, I'm, I'm happy about a couple of the governor's races. They're going the right direction. Gretchen Whitmer going the right direction. Evers seems to have his feet under him, even though Barnes has now become kind of a, you know, who could have seen that one coming? A super progressive guy in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. I mean, Call me crazy. I've only done, I don't know, 20 races there. And it's, it is still a very white conservative state, but here we are. Look, there are places I'm incredibly concerned about the future. Arizona is one of them. There's a chance that Arizona, that Mark Kelly does fine, but the rest of Arizona goes completely over the cliff and into an insane asylum. 
with both Fincham and Lake as incredibly dangerous figures. Look, I think this is really an important point. So we're focused on who wins or loses the kind of beauty pageant of November, but not as much the implications, what it means for 24 and going forward. And just to put a little exclamation point on your, I mean, Herschel Walker has to be the most spectacularly abysmal candidate in one of them in years. But the day after the revelation about his having browbeat a paramour into an abortion, apparently he had his biggest fundraising day. That kind of know-nothing aspect of it really seems to, to be coming to the fore. I will say one thing that Rick alluded to. It is unlikely, although not impossible, that you're going to see a huge Republican wave. It's, I would argue, unlikely the Democrats are going to keep the House. But if it is a very small margin in Republicans' favor, it is going to be total chaos. Mm -hmm. And they may take a very long time, frankly, to pick a speaker because these people are nuts. There will be very few sane voices because... Those people chose not to run, they retired, they lost in the primaries. So just organizing themselves may be a shit show, frankly. Guns on the floor of the house, right? Yeah. Hey, listen, I've been saying this for 12 months now. Jim Jordan has a better chance of becoming the Speaker of the House than Kevin McCarthy. All right. It's not the biggest issue going, but what's the impact, overall winner or not, Biden's announcement about marijuana, the pardons of possession, and the move to change the scheduling? Thumbs up, just on political terms? Yeah, it's a 75-plus percent issue. He's morally, politically, and ethically in the right here, in my view. And when you have Republicans complimenting him, you know that that's not something they're going to pursue. (laughs) Also, when you talk about base motivation, this plus the climate change stuff, plus the student debt relief is really aimed at trying their darndest to get those younger voters and minority voters out to the polls. They are notoriously irregular on midterms, and he is trying everything he possibly can. In the case of the marijuana, it happened to be a good thing that he was doing, but I think it's pretty clear what he's trying. Democrats need to remember that their base is smaller and less attached to the political process than than Republican base. Base first politics is reckless for Democrats. Yes. And whatever is going to happen in November, immediately afterwards, Biden needs to have a national anti-crime agenda. He needs to have a civic order agenda. You all saw that story in the New York Times about the homeless guy who killed a woman's dog. The president should be on the side of the dogs, not of homeless people who kill dogs. He should make that very, very, very clear. He has to get control of the border. And that means he has to revive the Remain in Mexico policy. That was one of the terribly expensive mistakes he made at the beginning of his presidency, and it was driven by his own base. This is not asylum-seeking you're seeing. And he needs, in the next two years, really to govern his tongue. And that mistakes like the one about nuclear apocalypse, those really reverberate. I remember there's a lot of mockery of Barack Obama and the teleprompter, but I mean, I'm pretty confident of my words, but if things I could say could make the Dow Jones lose hundreds of points or topple a government in Thailand, I'd speak off a teleprompter. I'd carry it around with me. I would not be ashamed. There's no shame in that game. Because you need to calculate. I've thought through the implications for American politics and our our lives, but I hadn't thought about the Thai angle and that we now have had a coup in Thailand is this unfortunate thing I said. Think it through. The president's words are so powerful. So they have a lot of ground. But the, the biggest ask they're going to have after 22 is 
like what Bill Clinton had after 1994 only on steroids, which is that he's going to be able to make Jim Jordan his foil. He's going to be able to make the House Republicans his foil. And however unpopular Donald Trump is, those guys are going to be less popular than that. And by the way, one last thing on this subject, Harry, there may be something that is a saving grace both for the, the immediate future, maybe even for the rest of the 2022 cycle. Elon Musk is going to put Trump back on Twitter, okay? And that is going to make him once again the central figure in the dialogue every day. And I think that's to the good for Joe Biden and good for the Democrats overall. That's a bold prediction. The idea that Trump has disappeared is in fact informed by he's been banned on most social media platforms. And we know that's not true, that he's disappeared, but that is going to be a powerful force I'm willing to bet on in the coming months. Wow. I'll just say on immigration, I remember, David, you sounded that warning in a friendly way at the very beginning of the administration. So you've earned it. Very briefly, let me just ask you, Rick, what's been happening in Ukraine, but staying with this sort of political angle of it, you tweeted out a Lincoln Project ad in support of American assistance for Ukraine. The Ukrainians have you know, had a solid week, but it still seems like the Russian materiel is so much stronger. What are the domestic politics around support for Ukraine now as you see them? Well, we did a little research on this. And, you know, there are still enormous communities in this country of people from Ukraine, from Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland, Hungary, Germany, especially in a bunch of the swing states like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Ohio. So we had our our nerds go out and like run the numbers And we discovered we could reach them digitally with a very high efficiency rate. And this is a message that pushed and moved them dramatically. And it made them cautious about the Republicans, not the generic Republican that's in their head, but the crazies who want to do that. And these are people who also tend to be a little older. They still have a memory of the Cold War. They still look at the Russians as a force for chaos and evil in the world. And so, you know, we're going to make that very clear that there is a cohort of Republicans, including those on the ballot and those already in elected office, who really don't believe that we're on the right side of the Ukraine question and they want us to change sides. So we're going to push that button in some of those states where we think it can make a real difference. Wow. All right. That's really interesting. So we just have a minute or two left for our Talking Five feature, where we take a question from a listener. Each of us has to answer in five words or fewer And today's question, what is the congressional House or Senate race you're watching most closely and why? Nevada Senate race, weak Democrat. Pennsylvania Senate race, don't go, don't sleep on it. (laughs) (laughs) Or don't sleep. That's that's, that's six words, sorry. Okay, well, I, I need a setup, but I can do the punchline in five words. I'm watching uh, Georgia to establish whether the Republican Party there is going to establish that abortion is a deeply personal matter between a man and his bank manager. (laughs) Man, I I had it easy before, but now I'm worried about Colorado, but I'm sticking with Pennsylvania, Senate, pray very hard. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Rick, Jen, and David. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes 
talking books, and bonus video content. Or you can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod. You can also go to patreon.com slash TalkingFeds to see our extra content there posted exclusively for subscribers. Just in the last few days, we've posted an interview I did live with Jan Wenner about his new book on the glory days of rock and roll, and one from Paul Barrett of the NYU Stern Center about the continuing mischief of social media companies. We try to make Talking Feds a better listening experience for all and therefore keep advertisements to a minimum. So subscribing on Patreon really helps us to be able to do that. So you can go to Patreon, see what we have there. And if it strikes your fancy to join our supporters, please do. Submit your questions to TalkingFeds.com slash contact. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry... As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Laurel Feldner, Kalena Tano, Emma Maynard, and David Emmett. Thanks very much to the great Judd Apatow for explaining the crime-fraud exception to attorney-client privilege. Finally, our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.